Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Hey, good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Joel. I uh, do various tasks around this place. I, uh, I am the college pastor here, and I chase our senior pastor around the Middle East with a video camera, and uh, whatever else they'll have me do. And uh, this morning, I'm your teacher. God help us all. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, who you are this morning, and um, thank you that your Holy Spirit's with us. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit's also our teacher this morning. We thank you that the text this morning isn't, isn't dead and old. It's, it's alive. It's living and active. So Lord, we invite you to uh, allow it to, to be exactly that. Uh, we don't want to leave here the same person we came in as. Um, we give you free permission to get radical with us this morning. And uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. It's only due to your name. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So hey, we're, uh, we're concluding our, uh, our uh, sermon series titled New. And this has gone off after the, uh, the whole New Year's resolution. Uh, and so we've gone through amazing passages of scripture. And we're talking about this, this idea of you and I being new creatures, new people. Anytime New Year's resolutions come along, we join gyms, we vow to get skinny, get smart, whatever, and it never remains. So the question this morning that I have is how do all these things that we've been talking about for the past few weeks remain? How do we sustain them? And so uh, we're going to be looking at John 15. So I love holidays like, you know, January 1st, where we can kind of take a step back and go, man, 2018 was this, and we hope 2019 is that. And then a few weeks later, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. I love that day. It's a great day as a nation to just take a moment and to think back about who Martin Luther King was, and even to take it back further. I like to go back all the way to William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore and the Clapham sect, who in England said, you know what? The slave trade is not cohesive with the gospel. We've got to change it. So as believers, they said, man, we're going to set out on this journey for 40 years. We're going to fight and fight and fight and fight, and we're going to change culture. And they did. So much so that Abraham Lincoln, 30 years later, takes notice, hey, what's going on in England? Yeah, we don't want, we don't want that on our hands either. So we're going to, the Emancipation Proclamation came to be. That's incredible. And then a few years later, the greatest baseball team ever, the Dodgers, (laughs) we got Branch Rickey who says, you know what, we're going to change baseball forever. And he brings on Jackie Robinson. And he goes, heck, man, I'm a Methodist. Jackie's a Methodist. God's a Methodist. What could go wrong? (laughs) I love that. Reformation, changing things. And then that leads up to Martin Luther King Jr. says, man, The work's not done yet. It continues. And so we take a day and we go, man, the work's still not done. And so we we plan and we we figure out how does this sustaining spirit of reformation and the gospel changing us, God changing us, how does that continue on to the future? So Mark last week gave us 10 things to look at, 10 things and principles to meditate on for 30 days. Have you guys been doing your homework? So the first thing he says is set your course. Remember in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, where are you going this year? And then number two, uh, take off your old clothes. <laughs> this isn't this isn't having to do with like Black's Beach or nudist colony. He's saying that to get rid of your sin nature, the unrighteousness, 
Put on new clothes, number three. Four, the peace, uh, let peace be your umpire. I like that one. Be thankful, soak in God's word, honor Jesus in all things. Honor and respect those who you work with. That's a good one. Pray regularly. And the tenth and conclusion is season your conversations with grace. I love that. But again, my, my it, it's easy to do when Mark gets up here because, man, he gets us so fired up. I just, I just want to be a Christian when that guy talks. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the Christianity I want. And so I leave here and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then what happens is like, you know, well, Monday happens and then Tuesday happens. And then, you know, I'm back at church next week going, I need 10 more things. What do we got to do? And so my question is, how do we sustain this? I believe that, these, that the answer to this riddle is John 15. I believe that's where we find the solution to remaining new as believers. So John 15, uh, a couple things take place. Jesus paints a picture of our union with him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, great. The preacher comes out. He's going to talk about John 15. It's kind of like, it's kind of the passage where Jesus kind of sounds like a hippie from Lucadia drenched in patchouli oil. He's like, <laughs> it's like, hey man, I'm a vine and you're a branch and we'll create fruit together. It's kind of weird, right? It's kind of ethereal. We're going to try to understand what, what it's talking about here. And he says this, and then they, they states his uh, union, this union requires a continued action. And that action is abide in me and I in you. So that's the invitation this morning. So the, the story begins in John chapter 13. And this is the Lord's Supper. This is the, he's, he's explaining to the disciples as they eat that, that uh, of what's to come. And they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what, where Jesus is taking them. So in verse five, we pick up and he says, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus here is saying, he's like, listen, Peter, if you don't allow me to serve you, we don't have a relationship. This, there's a lot of gravity to what Jesus is saying here. If you don't allow me, Peter, to serve you, to wash your feet, we're not in relationship. Pretty radical. It continues on in verse 12. He says, do you know that I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example so that you should do as I did to you. Verse 17, if you if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Beautiful, beautiful. So Jesus says, do you know what I've done for you? I've given you an example. Do as I have done to you. Serve and love others. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So we see that here that the, a relationship with Jesus looks like this. You or I allowing him to serve and to love you. That's it. It's you allowing him to serve and to love you. So before I was a Christian, I kind of looked at all the religions out there, and it was kind of they all kind of looked the same. You had the worshiper, the worshiper serving God. That was it. And I always kind of looked at that. And I'm like, man, I don't have much to offer God. Religion's not for me. And when someone told me, no, 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 the, the script is flipped with a relationship with, with Jesus, because God serves 
his worshipers. And we see that here in the text. And that's something that gets my heart beating. I'm like, yes, I like that. I like that. So a relationship with Jesus looks like this. You allowing him to serve you, to love you, to save you, to heal you, and to give you rest. I call this the response to the first invitation in the gospel, the come unto me invitation. You know the text, come unto me all who are heavy laden and, and weary and I'll give you rest. Well, he gives us so much more. He gives us salvation. Come unto me for salvation. Come unto me for healing. And yes, come unto me for rest. And so saying yes to that is imperative for the Christian. And number two, we see that uh, he says that you serving and loving others is imperative to be in relationship with Jesus. So our neighbor, text is full of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your enemy even, that's backwards. He calls us to love our enemies. He calls us to love the church. So this is responding to the second invitation in the gospel, the come follow me invitation. And so this is the abiding relationship, the come unto me, come unto Christ, and now come follow Christ. Remember with Peter? Remember his relationship with him? Hey, Peter, come follow me. And he did. He had the courage and the faith or whatever you want to call it that he did that. And that's what he's inviting us to. And it's not just one and done. It's not Jesus, hey, come, come to me. And like, I'm going to save you, and then off you go. No, no, he's like, come unto me. Now let's go change the world. It's a broken world. Let's go. Oh, oh, we're not, come unto me. It's like a kid at Disneyland, right? Oh, come on, stay here. You know, you don't get to just run off. You have to stay close. So John 15, we see that these two invitations, come unto me, come follow me, lead to three priorities. The first one being this, the abide in Christ. The second one being this, love others. And the third one being this, bear witness. This is a pre-picture of the abiding relationship found in John 15. So we pick up in our text, and we know here that the Last Supper has taken place, and now they're all standing up, they're pushing their, their chairs in against the table, and they're walking out the door, and this is where this conversation happens. And Jesus said to them as they're leaving, he says, hey, by the way, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as my father has loved me, I have also loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. If the teacher says it 10 times, is it on the test? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This word abide is important to Jesus. And remember the context here is that that they're, they're up and leaving and they're a little spun out. Jesus has just dropped a bomb on them. They've eaten this meal together. It's the last supper They're trying to figure out, have they been following a clown around for the last few years? Or is this truly the Messiah who's going to die on the cross and be raised again from the dead? And he's going to leave? Now what? He's going, okay, 
here's a picture for you. And he paints it. And I'm trying to understand how, how they would have responded to it. From, for you and I, we get it because a lot of us have grown up in Sunday school or church and we, we get all these, these little things that Jesus says all the time. It's just kind of normative. But for this audience, it would have been very different. Their context would have looked something like found in Psalm 80. In verse 8, it says, you removed a vine from Egypt. So this is the context that they would have thought of when Jesus was talking about. And of course, here the vine is, is, uh, is Israel. And you drove out a nation, you planted it, you cleared the ground before it, speaking of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And you took deep root and filled the land and the mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches into the sea and its shoots up to the river, Euphrates. This is talking about the influence and the blessing of Israel once it left captivity in Egypt and was planted in the Holy Land and the Promised Land, it flourished. And it continues, why have you broken down its hedges so that it would pass the way uh, it picks its fruit? And verse 14, it continues, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. So it was almost a negative context. It was the disobedience of Israel. It's like what once was this beautiful vine they're pleading with to be redeemed and to be used once again. Another context that would have seen is in Isaiah 5. It's the parable of the vineyard on the fertile hill. Again, this is Old Testament. This is predating Christ. He says this in verse 5. He says, let me sing now a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless grapes. Continues in verse six, it says, so now let me tell you what I'm gonna do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it to waste. It will, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will charge the clouds to rain on it no longer. So sin ruined the vine. Sin ruined the garden. It continues in verse 8 through 10. It says, because of their covetousness, their greediness, and their worldly, their desire for worldly wealth, it left them with the consequence of famine. And then it says this, continuing on, it says, because of their rioting and their reveling and their drunkenness, it led them into captivity. Uh, so that's what the disciples would have been thinking about. Like, what are you talking about? You're the vine, we're the branches. Like, this is, a, this is a negative connotation, typically. This is their history of Israel. And they're trying to make sense of it. He goes, yeah, 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 that picture that you have, let's make a new picture. Let's start over. Let's do it again, but let's do it better. So although, yes, I'm going to die and resurrect and ascend into heaven, listen, let's be a vine and a branch. And let's produce fruit. So he was changing perception here in a big way. He says, let's try this again. So in the picture of John 15, we see four identities. One, we see the vine, which is Jesus. Two, we see the vine dresser, or the gardener. This is God the Father. And then we see a healthy branch and a dead branch. These are the four things that we see. So let's start with the negative. Verse two says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he will take away. This is referring to a dead branch. Verse six, if, every, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them in the fire and they are burned. So a fruitless branch has a dead branch outcome. 
So my question then, what does Jesus mean by fruit? This is all still kind of weird. The vine, the branch, fruit. What does he mean by that? I know how our culture would define fruit. It would be um, an outcome, and usually a good outcome. The fruit of your labor the, you know, would be a good outcome, typically. But here we have to understand that what Jesus is speaking of when he talks about fruit is righteousness. It's righteousness. It's this big, heavy word of righteousness. It says your life ought to be producing righteousness. So that's what Jesus means by it. It says, verse 2, it says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit, more righteousness. So pruning produces more righteousness. In James 1, 2, it says this, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or suffering, pruning, knowing that the testing of your face produces endurance, and the endurance has its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Have you ever read this verse? Has it ever just tripped you out? Good, me, perfect and complete? What are you talking about? I'm far from that, and I don't like pretending to be because it just makes me a hypocrite, and that's weird. But here we have to understand that this perfection and completeness isn't my perfection and completeness. It's Christ's perfection and completeness. This is that word righteousness that is spoken of. So I get it. I get it. We're going to take a break. We're going to slow down. The pastor here, he's talking about righteousness and all this stuff, and it's weird. All right, so we're going to just take a breath. Everyone breathe in. Exhale. It's going to be okay because there's some positive stuff coming, okay? The load gets lighter. Verse 4, the branch, it says, cannot bear fruit or righteousness of itself unless it abides in the vine. Okay. All right. So it's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness in me. What does that look like? Verse 5, it actually says, actually, apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. This is visible righteousness in our life, which, according to verse 8, brings God the Father glory. He's the gardener. He's excited when his garden is producing fruit, producing righteousness. And it proves our discipleship to Jesus. It's the mark of Christ on our life. When people see you and they see righteousness in your life, they should see Jesus. Not an amazing you, but an amazing God that we serve. So, continues on, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a crazy verse. I remember in 1988, God answered two out of three of my prayers. The Lakers won the world championship. (laughs) The Dodgers won the world championship. Um, And for a little fifth grader, man, that meant everything. That was epic. Uh, I didn't get a Lamborghini, but every every fifth grader would want at the time. But this is a crazy verse, right? That God's going to answer whatever we ask for and wish. But remember the context of this verse. This is in the abiding relationship. This is when we are seeing God working in our lives and we're seeing him and it's a closeness to him. It's not a selfish desire. It's a godly desire. He says, man, what do you want to do? What broken things in this world do you want to fix? Let's start with you. What's broken with you? And God wants to get in there and fix it. And he will. It talks about, what about other things in this world? That's why I love our church. We've got Nick and Kelly. They're so busy. We've got all our missions partners. And these people are just going, man, there's a lot of things that we can be doing, a lot of th- prayers that could be being answered with my participation. 
and people getting out there. And we have an incredible missions program and incredible uh, programs here that are just getting, activating the church into the brokenness of society, the brokenness of ourselves, and seeing the gospel get in there and heal the stuff up. So, um, it concludes with this, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So, the abiding relationship, we are gifted a few things. First of all, we're gifted God's righteousness. He gives it to us. God's love, verse 9, and God's joy, verse 11. And Christian, listen, this morning, you are not allowed to refuse these gifts. Just like Peter, when Jesus was washing his feet, you're not allowed to refuse them. God's saying, listen, if you refuse these things, we're not in relationship. That's it. You've got to accept them. You've got to allow God's goodness, his gifts to enter to your life. That's it. So what if I were to tell you there are more gifts? Ah, I feel like Oprah Winfrey. And you get love, and you get love. What about joy? What about peace? What about patience? I want that gift. Kindness. I need that gift. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Obviously, these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and that's the point. It's the fruit, the righteousness of God. And this is what he wants to give us this morning in this abiding relationship. It's beautiful. How about a love that is a real love? I mean, a lot of times I've been in relationships and I've, you know, I've been loved or whatever, and it's, it's, it's not a very good thing. It's a broken word for a lot of us. But the love that God wants to give us is a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that's not jealous, a love that does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, 1 Corinthians tells us, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account wrong suffering. God's love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with truth. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and God's love never fails. That's awesome. What about a joy that is everlasting and not circumstantial? Boy, that sounds good. What about a peace that surpasses all understanding? You see, this is God's DNA. It's not your DNA or my DNA. When I was a a little kid, I grew up in Seattle, Washington area, and I got heavy into snowboarding in the early 90s. This is when the sport was brand new. We were just figuring it out. And uh, I was uh, going snowboarding with my buds, and I had saved up all my money all summer, and I bought, I wasn't a rich kid, but I, I bought this board. It was a, a caution snowboard. That was the brand name. Rest in peace. The company's long gone. All my friends had Burton snowboards. That's like the Nike of snowboarding. And I had this caution. I was proud of it, man. It was awesome. But on the top sheet, I got it cheap because it, it had a wavy top sheet. It was a second. So the factory said, looked at it like, we can't sell this for uh, top price. And so they put it in a pile. Then the poor kid comes along and buys it, and he's all stoked until his friends see it, and they're like, what is that, dude? Are you kidding me? And I'm just getting mocked and made fun of, but I don't care. I'm a snowboarder. I'm just going to the mountain. I'm like, I'm entering into this new life, and it's amazing. And one day, we were at the mountain, and we're going up the chairlift, and they just started to pile snow in off the side of the run, and guys were making jumps out of it. And like, snowboarding was brand new. The resorts were just allowing us to go, and now they're allowing us to build jumps, and it was an amazing time. So we're going up the lift, all these little little groms, and I look over, 
the best snowboarders I've ever seen in my life are coming down through the park and they're ripping. And we're going, oh my gosh. It's like a kid watching Michael Jordan like live and in person. We're just going, wow. And there's like four or five of them and they were just blowing our minds. And so we were going up and they were going down and then they were going up and we were going down. But we finally met at the bottom of the chairlift. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, these guys are cool. They're older, they're amazing. And one of them tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, cool board. I'm like, (sighs) (laughs) even these guys are ripping on me. This like, oh, and I look down and my head's all low and I look down and wait, he has the same board as I do. (laughs) And then I looked over at the other guy and he had the same board as I do. Well, it was the caution snowboard professional team. And this guy goes, hey, man, you want to go ride with us? And I'm like, yeah, later, suckers. And so this little tiny kid is riding with professional snowboarders, and they take me into backcountry, and it changed my life forever. Forever. I mean, forever. From that point on, snowboarding wasn't something I did. It was who I was. It was my identity. So later on in life, I'm working in the snowboard industry. And I'm traveling around, I'm visiting shops, and I'm in a shop up in, uh, in the Tacoma, Washington area. And in walks this guy, it's the middle of summer, in walks this guy, he's, he's like barefoot, he's like missing teeth, he's all methed out, literally. And we're like, whoa, who's this guy? And he's like asking questions and picking stuff up, and I'm talking to the shop owner, and he, this guy left. I go, man, who is that? He goes, it's John Portman, man. I'm like, John Portman? He comes back in. I said, hey, man, uh, you might not remember this, but I sure do. When I was a little kid, uh, you grabbed me by the shoulder, and, uh, and you took me under your wing, and, and you showed me snowboarding. And here I am. I'm, you know, I'm, I work in the industry, and it's been, it's, been an, it's been a huge part of my life. Man, I just want to say thank you. Well, John was addicted to meth, homeless. I mean, his, his career was short-lived, and it was the gutter pretty much right after that. And so we started a relationship. He was blown away. He was in tears when I told him that. And uh, at the time, I had access to all the stuff. I said, like, hey, man, would you ever want to go, go, go ride? I'd love to go ride with you again. And uh, he goes, yeah. So I gave him you know, a, a whole kit. And snowboarding, that's a lot of money. And so I gave it to him, and we went and we snowboarded, and we had this best day of our lives. I couldn't believe I got to go riding with Portman again, and he was just excited to be back on snow. Well, you know the story. He comes back down. Uh, and he sells all his stuff, and he gets high. But I just felt God was saying, you know what? You just keep <laughs> loving him. It's what he did. It's a true story. You keep loving him. You don't get, this isn't like, this isn't like, there's no reciprocity in this. It's not about you love and, and get love back. This is, this is godly love. It's, it's a one-way deal, okay? So you're just going to enter into this, and you're going to take part in this. And I just felt like, okay. And so I just gave him a, cra- a, a couch to crash on, uh, we'd buy him meals. My, my mom would have him over for Thanksgiving. He really became my brother. And um, I remember one day he, he grabbed me by the sh- shoulders and he goes, dude, what is your deal? <laughs> Straight my, what is your deal? I keep ripping you off. I keep stealing and you're just, you're just good to me, dude. What's your deal? And I just go, I don't know, man. If he were here and tell you, he'd he'd like impersonates me. He goes, it was just the Lord, dude. That's how he, (laughs) but anyway, in that conversation, I'm just going, listen, man, if there's anything 
about me that's redeemable, it's Jesus. That's it. You know my story. You remember what I was like as a kid. It's no different from anybody else. If there's anything good in me, it's the Lord. And for the first time in my life, being 21, 22, 23, somewhere in that, that framework of life, just feeling like a guy, I have nothing to offer God. I'm just, I, I still, you know, I'm like, who am I? I look at all these amazing pastors and people in ministry, and I was going to Bible college, but not to be in ministry. I never wanted to be in ministry. But it was to learn how to be a Christian. That was it. That's why I went. That's where you go to learn to be a Christian. So that's where I went. But for the first time in my life, I saw the fruit of the Spirit alive in me and actually nourishing the people who were around me. God was changing people's lives, and I was just sitting there watching it like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. This is incredible. Well, Portman's story is one of redemption. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a brother. He's, he's clean. Uh, he's happily married. It's incredible. It's incredible. I, I've got a million Portman stories, so if you're ever bored, take me to coffee. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. And so the point here in the abiding relationship that all you and I have to do is be a branch. That's it. And all you have to do to be a branch is is to abide. God's going to produce the fruit and use the fruit for his mission. So my question is this, how do you define abiding? What does it mean to abide? Well, Merriam-Webster defines it as this, I kid you not, to tolerate, to endure without yielding, to wait for, and to accept without objection. No wonder no one wants to abide with God. To tolerate God? Can you imagine? To endure God without yielding, to wait for God, where are you? To accept without objection. This isn't, this isn't Jesus' definition, keep in mind. The theological definition that would be used for the abiding relationship is this. First of all, in reference to place and space, it's one of moving and growing, okay? Number two, it's one of remaining, to not to depart. So it's two things. It's both come unto me, and it's a, it's a steady, consistent place, and then it's also moving, it's almost, it almost sounds like a contradiction. It's moving yet remaining, but in Christ, we understand what that means. It's remaining in him, fixed, but he's not content with just that. Oftentimes, I think, like, man, it'd be really cool to be a monk and just sit there and just be with God all day, but that's not how he designed it. It's like, man, be in that relationship with him, but use it. Don't just sit on a mountaintop. Use, get, into, get into the city. Get into the, where the people... The, People are broken. How selfish is it to just sit up there? Now, I know there's a lot of amazing monks. I love reading their stuff and and being with them. That's not the point here. That was a tangent. Now I'm in trouble. I'm going to get an email. (laughs) And then secondly, it's in reference to time. It's a continue, uh, to continue to be one, not to perish, to last or endure. This is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in you. All in one. This is what Jesus is describing. It's beautiful. I love the passage in Ephesians when it talks about my position as a believer being in Christ. I get the whole Jesus and me thing. I was taught that at a young age. It always, always kind of weird. Like, what do you mean? I unzip my heart, put Jesus in there, and then he's like my new personal assistant. He's going to help me be better and get good grades and stuff. I didn't understand that. But when I understand that my position is in, is in Christ, that changes my behavior. It changes my outlook on life. It changes everything. And that's just a picture thing for me, but really it affects my behavior. But I love that he and I, and I and him, and the Holy Spirit working in there, part of the Father, the Trinity, and then they accept me into this. It's, it's incredible. It's really, really beautiful. 
So the question now is in lieu of the theological definition of it, it abiding relationship really operating in time and space, how then do I abide? And I think the solution is also the enemy of this. The solution and the enemy of the abiding relationship is time and space. Time is our enemy, but time is what Jesus is inviting us to spend with, with him. Space is packed. We have no space in our life, but Jesus is saying, listen, make space and watch what happens. So the first thing, let's talk about time. The first thing I think we need to do to push into this abiding relationship is to create time in our life. There's a really cool Henry Nouwen uh, quote that says this, that solitude, or we could, we, could, we could put the abiding relationship, begins with the time and place for God and him alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but that he is actively present in our lives, healing, touching, and guiding, then we need to set aside time and space to give him our undivided attention. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, I think there's some of us in the room, and keep in mind, I'm not a preacher. When I'm pre- this is what I've learned. <laughs> I'm not, if, I'm like, if this feels like a slap across the face, please know that it's been a black eye to me. So this is, this is me uh, dealing with me in front of a lot of people. <laughs> so first of all, for me, creating time is, is self-diagnosing uh, what they call hurry sickness. I came across this uh, recently, um, a few years ago, and it's, it's understanding that uh, for those of us who have an addictive relationship to time, it's a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. Oh, man. For a young guy, years ago, for me, that's where I found purpose. That's where I thought I meant something. When I was busy, I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm important, right? And now I realize that it's, it's really, it's become the enemy. In fact, this hurry sickness, they've also related it to heart disease. It's killing us. This addiction to being rushed and hurried, it's not healthy and it's, it's an enemy to the abiding relationship. Number two is making the most of our time. I kind of ping pong in between being rushed and busy and then being apathetic. There's, there's seasons of life where you're just going, 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 going. And then you just hit a wall and you're like, I don't want to do anything. I'm just going to ride the couch for a few days and not talk to anybody and become apathetic. Ephesians 5.15 says this, therefore be careful with how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. I think it's important to have an outlook where there's balance of yes, accomplishing stuff with your day, but being wise with your time is so important to really assess that each day. What am I doing with my time? When I was younger, I, I interviewed, uh, I was part of an interview with Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew's a hero to me. The God Smuggler, have you guys ever read that book? It's like the most amazing book. It's life-changing. Anyways, this, this guy uh, would smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. Every time he would do so, risking his life. And so it's like a Hardy Boy, it's like a Christian Hardy Boy. So you're just like, oh my gosh, the next chapter is just crazy. And so you read on, and now you know that 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 story led into the ministry of open doors, which uh, I work closely with all the time. This is the ministry of the persecuted church. When Mark said, hey, we should go make a documentary in Iraq, what I did is I called my friends at open doors and said, hey, when's your next trip to Iraq? I need to get on it. And so that's, that's how we work. And so Brother Andrew launched that ministry. I mean, he's friends with the Taliban, like friends. Stop and consider that. They love him and he loves them. An enemy, like actually like living out that verse 
And I, we asked him in the interview, said, Brother Andrew, how do you relate to God? I mean, you live this amazing life. It seems un. It's like, it's like interviewing Michael Jordan and asking him how he does his jump shot. It's like asking you this almost seems crazy because I don't know if that'll ever be real to me. And he goes, well, how I relate to God is simple. I, I wake up at four in the morning and uh, yeah, I begin to pray for my friends who are being persecuted all around the world. I pray for the persecuted church, my friends in Pakistan, my friends in Syria, my friends in the tough places of the world. He goes, that's what I do for you know, three or four hours in the morning. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. I don't have 10 minutes to like tie my shoe, you know? I don't, I, my relationship with God is like on life support because I'd never spend time with him. And here Brother Andrew is healthy and vibrant. He's like, yeah, yeah, it takes time. It takes a lot of it. it. takes a lot of it. So I looked at my life and I'm like, okay. So I wake up in the morning. I have enough time to kind of go through my routine and out the door. I got to go to work. Everyone's got to go to work. So I go to work and I get home and I love to spend a couple hours with my kids, catch up with them, play catch, go skateboard, do something like that. And then, you know, dinner and then dinner's in there. And then I love to put the kids to bed and have a few hours hang out with just my wife. And and then by the time I I look at my day and then it was usually that was, uh, you know, watching Netflix, (laughs) another season of The Office, right? (laughs) Or whatever was on. And I would go to bed at about 11 o'clock and I'd wake up and do it all over again. I'm going, yeah, there's just no time for God in there. So I thought, well, maybe it's time to reevaluate my time. And so I looked at that, that chunk between like nine o'clock and midnight was just a total waste of time. Nothing productive was ever, I was just like in a vegetative state watching something. And I go, man, I wonder if I could, I wonder if I could change that up. And so <laughs> young people, this is how you become old. I'm just warning you. <laughs> So I thought, you know what? I'm going to set my alarm for you know 5:30 in the morning, and I'm just going to try to wake up and go spend time with the Lord. So I do that. Sure, lo and behold, you know when when 8:30 comes around that night, you're like, I'm ready for bed. <laughs> so that's how you become old. That's it. <laughs> and my routine has has been since that time is like I, I love to just go to the beach. Like I said, I'm from Seattle. Seattle's a miserable place, you guys. <laughs> When you, when you see the ocean and you just, there's this like this land of Narnia that is Southern California where you're in a t-shirt in January, it's just epic. So I, every morning, that's, that's try, I try to have that be my routine. I push into that place and I just go and go, okay, God, here's my time. You got it. What do you want to do? And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Lastly, uh, in this whole time relationship, it's important that we learn to create rhythm. Rhythm's important. Um, adequate time is important. And uh, this is, I just, I put this in my notes. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I, for me, it's important. Be willing to diso- uh, be willing to, dis- um, to disappoint, there's the word, to disappoint others. Be willing to disappoint others. For me, I, was, I, was, I, love, I love it when everyone's happy, right? I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. And what I notice is like, I can do that for a season, but when I get worn down and tired, then even the people I'm trying to keep happy aren't happy anymore. And yet I, st- I try to still stay in that, s- that state, right? And I'm juggling and I'm like, they keep handing me balls. I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, at some point I'm gonna crash and burn and die and this is gonna be a bad thing. And so I'm realizing in life, like it's okay to disappoint people. <laughs> it's okay, it's all right. Why? Because what people really need from you is not you, it's 
It's you being in that abiding relationship. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit ministering to to, uh, our friends and family and the people that we live with. Oftentimes, we try to manufacture the fruit, right? Love, like, I'm going to learn how to love my wife and my kids and my colleagues and all these people. And we, we try to produce fruit, but let's be honest, it's, it's oftentimes rotten fruit. It maybe once was awesome, but is no longer. That's the rotten fruit, right? Or you're like the Costco fruit. Remember the Costco fruit like 10 years ago? You're like, oh my gosh, look at that strawberry. <laughs> how did it get to be that big? And it just looks perfect. And then you go home and you eat it and it just tastes like nothing. (laughs) Or it's like my teeth. Like they look great, but they're fake, you know? It's like, (laughs) it's too much information, but. But so often, I mean, that's that's the fruit that we're striving to give people and it's just not productive. It's rotten or fake. And God's going, no, 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 for... For me to be effective in your life and to, to nourish those around you, to nourish the Portmans, it's got to be my fruit through you. That's what the abiding relationship accomplishes. Abraham Heschel says this, I like this, spiritual life begins to decay when we fail to sense the grandeur of what is eternal in time. Time and space are interrelated. To overlook them is to be partially blind. So this moves us on to our last section. And this is dealing with space. How do we manage the space in our life? I know there's a Netflix show right now where there's some lady who's like going into homes and people are getting rid of everything. Is that, is that happening? I heard, I heard like if you go to like the Goodwill right now, you'll score because everyone's, everyone's getting rid of their stuff. But really decluttering our lives is, is necessary for the abiding relationship. God wants to move. He needs space. He needs time and space. And oftentimes we give him no time and zero space. We just go, oh, that's, locked off for Sunday morning, and that's locked off for this little thing, but he goes, no, I need more. So in decluttering our lives, listen, this is something that I understand as a filmmaker. This is something that I have to be excellent at. I can't fail at, at this. I can't have disorganized desk. I, it has, all of my, the information that we go and capture when we're filming and working on a project has to be hyper-organized. And clutter is the enemy of what I do. Clutter is the enemy of story. Clutter is the enemy of efficiency. Clutter is the enemy of quality. And clutter is the enemy of freedom. When we go over to Iraq and we're filming or whatever we are, we come home with terabytes full of information. I mean, so much information, it's crazy. Mark sitting there talking to someone who's amazing for, for multiple hours, two cameras on the subjects. And then we get home and our job as filmmakers isn't to go, hey, welcome to the film premiere for the next 37 hours. We're going to take you on a journey. No, we have to chop it down to an hour. And even that seems long. So where filmmakers are good isn't in cinematography. Anybody can take their iPhone and take a beautiful picture. It's in telling story and it's getting rid of which makes story good and beautiful and accessible And secondly, we got to build in margin in our life. And building in margin is protecting that which is valuable. So once you have your story, protect it. It's so easy to add on and add on and add on. Well, if I just added this shot, or a lot of times for me, it's like, you know how hard I worked for this shot? All day. All day I worked for this amazing shot. It just doesn't fit. It clutters the information. And a good filmmaker will say, you know what? Yes, it was a wasted day, but it was for the sake of the project. And that's what building in margins does in our life. It's not what's in my life, but rather what's not in my life that matters. It's about creating 
it's not even necessarily um, about creating space for, for God, but really how I view it is it's creating space for his mission, right? It's pushing back the boundaries of our lives and the clutter of our life and just go, okay, here it is. God, what do you want to do with it? Because we're already in that relationship with time, with God, in the relationship with God because of time. But now space is opening up our lives and going, what do you want to do with it? Because you know what he's so quick to do, at least in my life, is go, all right, is there some space? Can I operate? Can I move? Great. Here's John Portman. I'm going to put him right in there. What do I do with this? Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Here's some fruit. All right. And you see it worked out. I was at the beach um, this fall having my quiet time with the Lord, and it was a good quiet time. And I was just thinking about, man, my life has been really busy lately. And I really feel like the Lord was saying, hey, it's time to spend some time with the kids to create some, some, some really quality time. And we had just watched the movie The Sandlot, the best movie of all time. I'm wearing PF Flyers. Does anybody remember these? It's the greatest. And, uh, and I'm driving home, and across from our apartment in, in Carlsbad here, there's this open field. And uh, I'm thinking, huh, so I pull in, I said, hey, Liam, you want to build a baseball field? And he's like, yeah, Liam's my son. And so off we go, rakes and shovels and buckets and you name it. And, uh, and we made a baseball field. It was just this thing I felt like God was, was calling us to do. This is our baseball field. That's my daughter. And that's, we, we built that. It was the coolest thing. And so I just felt like, man, I needed to spend time and give God space to operate in my, my father relationship to these amazing two kids. And you know what God did? You know what God did? He didn't just clear the field. He started to bring people into the field. So Thanksgiving, we had this, this big game, and we invited everybody out. It was incredible. So many people were there, and we just had amazing time playing wiffle ball. And then all the neighborhood kids start rolling in. And I'm like full-time pitcher. That's my job. And I just sit there and throw wiffle balls at kids all day. And I thought, you know what? I wonder if breaking and entering is okay if you're a pastor in the community. <laughs> Because we didn't get permission. We just took over this field, and we put about 40 hours of work into clearing this field, building the mound, you know. And, uh, you know, I've got all these kids and, and all these other homes, like these big, nice homes, look down, and they're probably, oh, they're going to call the cops. And sure enough, they did. <laughs> so the cops show up, you know, and I see them there, and I'm like, the kids are like, oh, my gosh, we're busted. I'm like, just act cool, just act cool. I'm like, <laughs> they're like, you're a pastor. Where did you learn that? I'm like, don't worry about it. So... <laughs> So we're, we're playing baseball, and I see, and the cops just sit there, and then they look out. You know, they got a call, like, oh, we got something going on, and they show up, and it's just a, just a bunch of kids playing baseball, and the cop just goes, right on, man. <laughs> Takes off, you know? And then this lady comes over, and, and she's like, she comes over, and she's mean, and she, she came through our little, our little thing in the fence, and she's stern-looking, scowling face. She goes, what have you done here? I'm like, we built a baseball field. And she goes, this is the best thing that's ever happened to our community. I've been here 35 years, and to see all the kids playing, it's about time. She goes, this is incredible. So, so long story short, it's not that I'm amazing. It's just like, just create a little space and watch what God does. He'll, he'll do cool stuff with it. He's good at it. But when we dictate what God's going to do, it's like, He's like, okay, if that's what makes you happy. And it doesn't make us happy, but we think it makes us happy, right? Fill up our time. 
fill up a space in our life, and God's just going, let me out. Ugh. And when he does, man, there's fruit every time. I just share that story, not because I'm amazing, because God's amazing. Give him time and space. So, in the abiding relationship, what are our takeaways? Here are the takeaways for me. That you and I be an available branch. That's it. What does a branch look like? What does a branch do? I mean, it just sits there, right? Just, just stays attached to the tree. That's all a branch has to do. You're not like, come on, fruit. The branch doesn't do it. No, the branch's job is just to stay in that abiding relationship. Whew. All right, I can do that. I can try to do that. Give God time and space. Be that available branch. And secondly, in that, you being a branch, notice and watch Jesus transform you. He'll do it. He promises to do it. And if he's not, give him more time. Give him more space. But it's his promise. It's not the, the preacher's promise. It's Jesus' promise. He's going to transform you. And lastly, Jesus is going to sustain the new you. So we don't revisit this every New Year's Eve. Like, okay, what are the things to fix? You're doing that on the daily. And you're just going, Lord, here's my life. Forgive me my sin. What do you want to do today? Let's pray. Let's get into the word. Yeah, all these spiritual practices that are always good, but really, if they're not given time and space, they're just going to be something that we have to fix come next New Year's Eve, right? Man, I want to be a branch. How about you? I could do that. Religion's too big of a burden. Being a pastor's too big of a burden. Being, it's just too much, but I can be a branch. Running a nonprofit is too big of a burden. Helping other ministries around the world, making documentaries in Iraq, and what, like all your resume too, it's, just, it's too much. We're not designed to sustain it. And Jesus is going, give it to me. Let me have it. You, just be a branch. This is how we know Jesus loves us. He just wants to be with us. Cool. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. We thank you so much for um, just the reality of how much you love us. It's hard to comprehend. And um, so when we get little morsels like we did today, it's just, we just want to say thank you. And now as we uh, prepare to take uh, communion, God, uh, we, we realize that you, you do love us because you offered your body for us, Lord, as we take these elements here in a moment. It's, we're excited to do so to just remember how much you love us. So Lord, help us be branches. Help us produce fruit that's actual righteousness. And God, forgive us of our sins and just, just uh, continue to be you. And so we thank you and we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.